Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NABIP's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your healthcare happy hour. Did you know that NABIP regularly submits written testimony to Congress ahead of relevant health care hearings? From small business tax credits to association health plans to mental health network adequacy, NABIP submits statements to congressional committees when they are debating policy that impacts our membership. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NABIP Senior Vice President of Government Affairs Marcy Buckner is back to review our latest testimonies. Before we talk about these specific statements we submitted to these congressional committees and subcommittees over the last month or so, would you mind explaining a little bit for those who don't know about the testimony process? Why and when do we submit written testimony? Sure. So some of our testimony falls in different buckets. Some are for statements on the record for congressional hearings, and these can even vary amongst themselves with the with the hearings. Sometimes they're on a specific bill, sometimes they're on a specific issue. And then we also have markups, which are where they are doing a deeper dive into a specific bill. And it's a little different than a hearing that might be held on a bill. I know that sounds very confusing, but it's just some particular language here inside the Beltway that they use when they're having these, these hearings. And during the hearings, they bring experts in. Usually it's about four or five witnesses, as they're called, that will provide testimony either on the bill or the subject matter at hand. And this is an opportunity for members of Congress to ask these expert witnesses about the topics. And although it sounds like it is a huge brain trust with all of the members of Congress on that committee sitting together, all listening to the witnesses and never repeating the same question over and over. That is not exactly the case. Oftentimes, because members of Congress during these hearings have a specific amount of time, they're able to speak. And so they take turns asking questions. They go in order. And Oftentimes, when a member of Congress knows that, you know, they're going to be later in the lineup of questions, they won't attend the start of the hearing, and they will just show up when they know their name is about to be called to go on the record and ask their questions. And oftentimes, these questions are pieces that they expect to be sound bites taken from C-SPAN. So while having the hearings is very important to get these discussion matters out in the open and on the public record, NABIP oftentimes submits our written testimony because this can have often a larger impact than 
sometimes going in person, which is also important, but our written testimony can be provided as a whole and succinctly without being interrupted the way that sometimes your witness testimony is when you're in person and the members of Congress are asking questions. We're also able to provide the information in a complete form where we're comfortable with how the position is laid out. And then it's something that can be used as a reference, not just for the members of Congress on that committee, but um, for other members of Congress and for their staff to be able to use as a resource. Sometimes after we submit our statements, we end up hearing back from different staffers who have more questions about the item. And it allows us to be able to have just a different type of interaction with members of Congress and their staff than our typical meetings on the Hill. So healthcare is obviously a core topic for Congress, but health policy has been a particularly hot topic in the House and Senate over the last few weeks and will likely continue to be as we head into the summer. So let's talk about some of the comments we made first to the House Ways and Means Subcommittee on Health at the end of March, when the subcommittee was looking for ways to lower healthcare costs for small employers and individuals. So how did NABIP suggest that the subcommittee control costs for businesses and patients? Yes. So number one on the list for this was maintaining the tax exclusion. And when we talk about the employer tax exclusion, this is that provision that allows employees to deduct from their income the funds that employers provide to them in the form of health insurance benefits. And there is some interest on the Hill to tax those benefits, either at a certain percentage rate or to tax 100% of those benefits. If this is taxed, if those health benefits are taxed, it is believed that this would be one of the largest increases in taxes on middle-class Americans that we've seen in decades. Quite recently, the Congressional Budget Office released a report saying that if these benefits are taxed, it could bring in $600 billion, billion with a B, dollars a year. That is a lot of money to pay for some of the other projects that Congress would like to do. However, we think that the cost would far exceed the benefit of bringing in $600 billion because the cost to the American people, not just in taxes, would also come in the form of employers being faced with the decision of whether to continue to offer employer-sponsored coverage because they would lose their tax benefits in doing so. And many employers, especially those smaller employers, may decide that it's no longer worth it for them to continue to offer health insurance coverage. So we're very protective of the employer-sponsored market and the group market, and our comments reflected that in defending the importance of the tax exclusion. We also focused on those small businesses, Dan, and with the small businesses, Congress likes to talk about the small business tax credit that was included in the ACA. And obviously that was quite some time ago. And the restrictions around who could qualify for the small business tax credit included things like the amount of employees that are receiving health insurance, their average income, which is really low for the requirement and oftentimes 
makes it so small businesses aren't able to qualify for the small business tax credit. And there's also a length of time that a small business can receive it. So many of the small businesses that qualified for the small business tax credit have already received it and have exhausted the time period for which they can qualify. So there are a lot of different pieces here that are barriers to small business actually being able to take advantage of that tax credit. And, and those are some of the things that we shared in our testimony to make sure that we're not trying to shop around a small business tax credit that is unattainable for most small businesses. The next thing we touched on is now a pretty large priority for our association. Is that correct? That's right. We talked about site neutral payment and the term itself doesn't necessarily really yield to the, the layperson being able to determine exactly what we're talking about there. And I'll back up and kind of back into to how to describe these. This issue has come about because a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the health insurance market and, and, and healthcare market. There have been a number of hospitals that have bought up a lot of physician practices. And so you have these standalone clinics that are the physician practices that are owned by hospital systems. And what we're seeing is that the payment is not neutral to the site where you are receiving care. You do not have site neutral payment, which is what we would like. What we're seeing is if you're going in for an x-ray or an MRI, and I'm just talking about the services comparing apples to apples, that you're being charged more for that service at the hospital than you are at the physician practice, even though they're owned by the same entity. And like I said, we're comparing apples to apples here. I'm not talking about if you went to a physician practice for an MRI, but you went to the hospital for an MRI, and then you had to have a lot of other care because of whatever was happening, or you went to the emergency room. That's not what we're saying. We're just comparing the same service at different locations that are owned by the same entity. And we're seeing that hospital costs being much higher. And we would like to see them be the same and be at that lower level for what we're seeing being charged at the physician practice. So that's what site neutral payment is and what we are emphasizing to the Hill that we need them to take action to regulate this and make sure that we're not seeing those skyrocketing costs just because of the place in which the patient is receiving care. And then lastly, we did another lap on telehealth. We have been talking about this a lot, especially because of the special provisions that were in the CARES Act since the beginning of the pandemic, which allowed for folks to use their high deductible health plans to use their HSAs for telehealth. And this provision has continuously been extended. Right now, we're in the midst of another extension for 2023 and 2024, but that provision will expire at the end of 2024. And we would like to see this provision go in place permanently. We believe that those telehealth flexibilities have, have enabled people to have a higher level of access to care, especially for mental health care, and especially for those folks in rural areas. So we're once again repeating that request that this go in place permanently in the advocacy efforts of, of submitting our testimony. Well, just a couple of weeks later, we submitted a statement for the record to the House Education and Workforce Committee formerly known as the Education and Labor Committee. This also related to general ways of reducing healthcare costs, this time more specifically for workers and their families. Like many of our written testimonies, there is some overlap here with previously discussed testimony, but what else did we say to the Congressional Committee here? 
Well, in this, like you mentioned, we repeated much of those items that we just discussed in the previous testimony as they all impact the cost of care and the cost to the, the individual and the group. And in addition to those items in this testimony, we also discussed reinsurance or also known as high-risk goals. And what we said was really emphasizing that every state that has put in place a reinsurance provision through a 1332 waiver has seen costs drastically lower. And what we would ask for is a federal reinsurance pool, high-risk pool, so that we can see those savings be spread across all costs and not just in those states where they have implemented the, the reinsurance pools. And association health plans were also a very hot topic at this hearing. So what did we say regarding AHPs? Sure. And Dan, they were looking at some of the changes that we've seen in association health plans over the years. During the Trump administration, they released new regulations that changed the rules for association health plans and their structure, who could participate in an AHP, along with other pieces. And there has been interest by Congress to expand upon those regulations and to allow association health plans to open up to possibly expand so that there is no longer the restriction that everyone in the association health plan has to be in the same industry or to make it easier to cross state lines and other items. But we did caution, we want to make sure that there are still some guardrails in place when we're talking about AHPs and that it isn't just um, kind of a free-for-all. We want to make sure that we're not setting up structures that will have challenges down the road with financing similar to some of the co-ops that we saw early in the ACA years. I think many of us remember those co-ops going bankrupt. And so we want to make sure that we're not creating a situation where the AHPs are emulating what we saw the co-ops experiencing in the market and that we are actually allowing for another area of access to healthcare. Another important piece of written testimony that NAVIP submitted was to the House Energy and Commerce Committee on Transparency and Competition in Healthcare. Here we highlighted site neutrality once again from the transparency perspective, but we also mentioned to Congress that there are some transparency laws already on the books that could use maybe a little more enforcement. Is that right? That's right, Dan. And with this, we are specifically calling out those hospital transparency rules. To date, there's less than 25% of hospitals that are complying with the transparency rules. These are those rules that require them to post the costs of a certain amount of services at their hospital system and in a format that consumers can actually read. So we're not talking about those machine readable files that plan sponsors are doing. This is different for the hospital transparency. And because there's the lack of compliance, there is a large frustration about how transparency is actually moving forward. So we rightfully mentioned that the hospital transparency has hasn't been enforced and we haven't seen large action by the agencies to try to really bring the hammer down on this. And 
it was really interesting that we submitted that testimony prior to the hearing. And then at the hearing, CMS administrator Chiquita Brooks-Lasher was there as an expert witness. And she was asked by members of Congress specifically about this and in the enforcement of the hospital transparency rules. And while she was there on the Hill testifying, she said that CMS would be coming out with stronger guidance on compliance and trying to make sure that they are able to get this data, this information from hospitals into the hands of consumers. And so later that afternoon, CMS released a new round of guidance to kind of help implement those those hospital transparency regulations and provide more kind of rules of the road for hospitals, um, putting in specific due dates and other items that will reinforce compliance with hospital systems. One thing that we do point out here, however, is that even with just getting the cost analysis from hospitals where they're providing an average cost for a service, that isn't enough for consumers to truly be able to determine what the best course of action is for them or to kind of shop or compare prices. What they need in addition to those prices is also some type of quality metric and quality data so they know what quality of care they're getting for that cost. If they do decide to look at the data from the hospital transparency rules as a consumer to to shop services and try to lower their cost of care. In our testimony, we also mentioned that Congress could take action regarding transparency in the pharmaceutical space as well, specifically with PBMs. So what did we say there? Yes. So with the PBMs, there is a lot of interest and and need for education around things like spread pricing and ways that the PBMs are able to negotiate costs with the manufacturers that may not be revealed to the employer or plan sponsor. And so there's a huge interest to increase transparency in the PBM market so that employers are aware of the different savings that are involved and that they aren't just signing over and yielding rebates and things like that back to the PBM without the employer or plan sponsor knowing about it. So this is all about making sure that information is on the table. There is some concern on the PBM side, however, that by providing this information that they would be revealing trade secrets and would not be able to maintain their leverage for negotiations with manufacturers. So these are all pieces that are being taken into account when we talk about that PBM transparency. And and we've seen kind of a moving target here when Congress talks about PBMs. Some members of Congress are very concerned about total PBM regulation on a federal level or doing away with them altogether. And then other members of Congress are just asking for transparency. It seems as though the transparency angle is the one that's gaining the most traction. So we will continue to, to follow that. And of course, the thought here is that if we can have that transparency on the PBM side, that the funds that may be saved, that the interpretation is that the PBMs are keeping instead of passing on to the employer, that pass-through would actually happen if we have transparency, which could lower the cost to employers that are using those PBMs to try to mitigate their prescription drug costs. The last piece of testimony we want to discuss today was submitted just a few days ago to the Senate Finance Committee. This statement dealt with network adequacy in the mental health space, specifically regarding what are referred to as ghost networks. 
So what is a ghost network and how do we recommend that Congress deal with them? Yes, so I know it kind of sounds like a silly term with ghost networks. We're not talking about haunted hospitals or anything like that. Ghost networks are networks where if a consumer goes on to look at their network, providers that are listed are either not truly in the network or they're not taking new patients, which means it's kind of worthless for the consumer. It's not an avenue where they can access care if the list of providers is full of providers that are, are not taking new patients. So that is what is described as a, as a ghost network. It looks like there's a plentiful amount of providers, and specific, this specifically happens a lot in the mental health field. But when you look kind of behind the ghost, behind the shadow, you see that the network is really made up of providers that aren't able to take new patients. So it's, it's actually a pretty bare bones skeleton of a network. So we are asking for there to be more accountability on the one on the providers and the carriers for making sure that their networks are up to date. There were some discussions in Congress about putting the responsibility on the plan sponsor on the employer, which just doesn't make a lot of sense since the plan sponsor or employer isn't the one that is contracting the networks and putting the networks together with providers. So that was one area that we cautioned. And then another was we also circled back to those NQTL analysis and the requirements that plan sponsors have those to show mental health parity. And the fact that right now plan sponsors are trying to comply with rules for mental health parity in an environment where no plan sponsors are really passing the NQTL analysis. And so this is something that needs to be revisited and revised to create a structure that actually works and drives providers into the network instead of penalizing plan sponsors and creating a system where they're continuously auditing and, and failing these NQTL tests. And so this needs to be something that's revisited instead of creating a situation where we're putting more and more rules in place without solving the actual problems. So in addition to really emphasizing the role an employer plays in these plan designs and, and making sure to emphasize to Congress that it is not the employer's responsibility to build these networks and contract with providers. We also emphasize the fact that there is a workforce shortage, and this is causing a lot of the challenges for providers choosing to go and network. And so there needs to be more done to promote providers going into the mental health care space so that we can build those robust networks by increasing that workforce, which will also help to create a dynamic where more providers are willing to go in network because of that competition instead of remaining out of network because of the increased costs they're able to build. It is now time for the NABIP Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So Marcy, who are we toasting to this week? This week, we are toasting to our legislative council and their different working groups. This testimony takes a lot of work to put together. Dan actually drafts it, the host of our, our podcast here. So cheers to him. But he and the NABIP team wouldn't have the depth of knowledge to put together and provide these different statements and positions up to Congress without the discussions that we have with the legislative council and our working groups. 
oftentimes we get a notification of a hearing 24 or 48 hours in advance. And so we need to be able to produce these very quickly and being able to rely on those ongoing conversations that we have with those groups is just invaluable to us to be able to provide this content. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for NAPIP's Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Benefits and Insurance Professionals. For more information on NABIP's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit nabip.org.